to receive the truth of the implanted word and bring us fully into these great mysteries of our Lord's suffering and death on our account. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. And that is exactly what we begin to do right now at Christ Church and for the rest of this week. We begin to enter fully into the great mysteries of our Lord's suffering and death. One of the reasons why we do the palms, one of the reasons why on Monday, Thursday, we'll reenact, we'll actually not just reenact, but we'll enter back into the the, the foot washing and the last supper of our Lord. And one of the reasons why we go through, again, the passion narrative on Good Friday as we enter very deeply into that moment of Christ's crucifixion is because we're surrounded by stories that are seeking to define reality for us. They are relentless forms of catechesis through the media and through advertising. All around us, there is a story of what the world is really about, and it is a false story. And so the only antidote to that is for us to enter back into, once again, at a very deep level, the saving acts of our Lord Jesus Christ as we walk with him through this time, at the, Palm Sun, at the Palm Passion Sunday of our Lord, all the way to the cross and then to the empty tomb. But we need to stop along the way because there's so much information that has been passed on in that narrative that we just heard read for us this morning. We need to focus on something. Now, nearly every Sunday, today is the liturgical exception. We won't do it today. But nearly every Sunday, we confess the Nicene Creed at Christ Church. Now, that creed is an ancient summary of the biblical truth about Jesus uh, that was composed early in the church's history when there was a debate on the exact nature of who this man, Jesus, was. So the Nicene Creed echoes the scriptures when it teaches this. It teaches that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. This one person is 100% divine and 100% human. Now, I know there are accountants here this morning, and that troubles you deeply. That math does not add up, and yet that's the truth. The scripture says, or the, the, excuse me, the creed says it this way. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man. So this is this 100% human, 100% divine thing is totally beyond our ability to comprehend. And so usually, usually, folks, Christians tend to err on one side or the other, godhood or manhood. You know, theologically, revisionist or liberal Christians have a hard time accepting that Jesus, of, uh, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, is actually Israel's God, Yahweh, in human flesh. Jesus as merely a human being with an extra special good spiritual connection to God. Sure, we can understand that. We can accept that. But, but God, God? Nah, can't do it. Can't go there. And on the other hand, I think many theologically conservative Christians have no problem confessing Jesus as God, but they have a, an incredibly difficult time accepting that Jesus, listen, is truly and fully human, and he has experienced every scintilla 
of human experience except for sin. Russell D. Moore writes, No matter how orthodox our doctrine, we all tend to think of Jesus as a strange and ghostly figure. It just doesn't seem right to us to imagine Jesus feverish or vomiting or crying in a feeding trough or studying to learn his Hebrew. That's right. He didn't come into this world knowing his Hebrew. He had to study to learn Hebrew. He didn't get it just magicked on him because he was God. All right, that's Ben, not, that's not Russell D. Moore. Back to Russell Moore. He says, from the very beginning of the Christian era, those who sought to redefine the gospel argued that it doesn't seem right to, to think of Jesus as really flesh and bone, filled with blood and intestines and urine. It doesn't seem right to think of Jesus as growing in wisdom and knowledge, as Luke tells us he did. Somehow, such things seem to us to detract from his deity, from his dignity. And then Russell Moore says this, But that is just the point. It didn't seem right to the world to imagine the only begotten of the Father twisting in pain on a crucifying stake, screaming as he drowned in his own blood. This was humiliating, undignified. And that's just the point. Jesus joined us in our humiliation, our indignation. In this, Jesus is, the scripture tells us, not ashamed to call us his brothers. And it is here, listen, what we, the one thing we need to focus on, one of these vignettes in this narrative, and it's right here. It is here in the Garden of Gethsemane account that we just read from Mark's gospel today that the full, unadulterated, humiliating, undignified humanity of Jesus is on display. And this is of vital importance. Listen, this is not just academic. This isn't merely theological speculation. This is vitally important to every one of us in this room because in order to save, listen, in order to save 100% human beings, he had to become 100% a human being. In order to save you and me, he had to become one of us. To save us, human people like us, from death and hell. In order to do that, he had to become a fully human savior. Not a bulletproof action figure. And that's what I want us to focus on this morning. Now the last supper with his disciples is over. And Jesus knows that the hour of his torture and execution are swiftly approaching. And to prepare for his coming agony, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. And and Gethsemane simply means the olive press, the Garden of the Olive Press, in order to pray. And he reaches out to his closest friends, Peter and James and John, to watch and pray with him. And in this moment, listen, listen, Jesus is just like us. The scripture says in Mark 14, 32 and following, and they went to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, remain here and watch. So right there in verse 33, it says that Jesus, it says this, he began to become greatly distressed. But that word is actually better translated as he began to be startled 
and alarmed. He was startled. He was alarmed. He was surprised and alarmed. You know, that word is actually in Greek, it's, it's, it's ekthambio, and it's the same word that Mark will use in uh, chapter 16, just coming to talk about the resurrection when he talks about in uh, Mark 16, verse 5, and he speaks of the women, the myrrh-bearing women who come to the tomb early on that Easter Sunday morning, the first Easter morning, and instead of finding the dead body of Jesus on a slab, they find a brilliant angel sitting where the body should be, and it says that they were startled, they were alarmed. In other words, this isn't what was supposed to be happening. It was a shocking event. Now, that sudden encounter with the angel made them alarmed and shocked. So you have to ask yourself this, listen. You have to ask yourself, why would Jesus be startled like that? Why would Jesus be alarmed like that at this point? Well, after all, I mean, on three separate occasions, Jesus has vividly predicted his torture and death. Right here in Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, he predicted it. In Mark chapter 9, verses 30 and 31, he predicted it. And then just back in Mark chapter 10, verses 30 and two, uh, 32 and 34, this, the text says this. Listen, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, now listen, I want you to hear the specificity of the description that Jesus offers. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. That's exactly what happened. So why is Jesus alarmed? What is so startling in the garden? Here it is. This is, and this is where Christ is just like you and me. Jesus is having a very human experience. He had abstractly known that what was about to happen to him, but now suddenly it became real. In other words, we'll all sit here this morning and say, oh yeah, one day I'm going to die. Abstractly, we know that. It's one thing to say it sitting here. It's another thing to say it on a hospice bed. It got, it got real. And that was alarming. Let me give you an example. You may have noticed, if you were here last week, you may have noticed that uh, little Adelaide Pace has stitches in her forehead right there. And uh, she's off with her grandmom and, Knox, grandmom and granddaddy in uh, Knoxville, Tennessee today, but she has stitches in her forehead. And what happened was this. Uh, Tyler and Betsy and the children were preparing to go out somewhere, and Adelaide had gotten ready quickly, and she was excited about going. And so she was downstairs in the kitchen with her daddy, and there's a low shelf there on the wall. And Adelaide was jumping up and down. She jumped right up and split her head open right there on her forehead. And blood be just began to pour down her face. And she was, she was screaming and crying the way, a children, the way ch children do when there really is something wrong, which is different from other times. But when she, but she, Tyler looked around, he saw the blood streaming down her face. Betsy, come quickly. Adelaide's hurt herself. And so they bundle the kids into the minivan, and they're going down the road to go to the emergency department. And all of a sudden, Tyler realizes, he says to himself, hey, I operate on people's eyes. I can stitch up my kid's forehead. We don't need to go to the, the hospital. 
So they turn back around and they, they take Adelaide back in the house and they've got a uh, rag over her forehead and she lies down on the couch. She said, he says, Daddy, Daddy, uh, she says, uh, Tyler says to her, Daddy's going to go back to the clinic and I'm going to get the stuff that I need to sew up your head to give you the stitches. And so Adelaide's kind of chill with that. Daddy's going to get uh, stuff to sew up my head and that's good. And she's kind of, you know, not, she's whimpering but not screaming, uncomfortable, but it's okay. And then about 15 minutes later, here comes Tyler. He opens the front door, and he's got the needle with the lidocaine in it, and he's got sutures and a big old fishhook-looking needle in the other hand, and Adelaide loses her mind. She wigs out because what happened when she was lying on the couch and Daddy was somewhere else, it was an abstract reality. Sometime I'm going to get my head sewed up. But now it just got real. My daddy is going to come and bend over me, put a shot in my forehead, and sew me up, sew my skin back together. That's a very human reaction. And that's what happened to Jesus. In the garden, it just got real. Here's what's happening to the man Jesus in that moment in the garden. To his human nature, three things went from being abstract to become undeniably, startlingly, ekthambioly real. And the first thing was this, listen, the reality of the terror of death itself. Jesus, the author of life, was about to have the ultimate human experience that we in this room will not be able to avoid unless the Lord returns. None of us can avoid this, and we don't get to choose it. We don't get to choose to opt out. There's not a A, B, or C other option. He was about to experience the ultimate human experience, death. He knew he was about to experience how death unmakes our personality. How it completely strips us of control. You are the most helpless and out of control you will ever be at the moment of your death. How death strips us of our dignity. There is no such thing as death with dignity. It's always undignified. How death is slipping into the yawning mall of annihilating oblivion and there is not one thing you can do to stop it. In order to save us from death, he was going to have to experience the terror of death in all, all of its intensity on behalf of every single one of us. And so it says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9 and following, But we see him, Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, listen to what the Bible says, he might taste death for everyone. He might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Oh, now, wait a second. I thought Jesus was already perfect. What do you mean he's being made perfect? You see, that part of his humanity makes us very uncomfortable. We think Jesus should come with, like, uh, all of his operating system on board. 
But no, he comes into the world like every one of us as a real human being, and he has to learn things. So when it says being made perfect, what it actually means in the Greek is he had to be made, listen, complete. And you can't be completely human without experiencing death. The founder of their salvation, perfect through suffering. Jesus, who had never sinned also, realized he was going to experience the horror of bearing the sin of the whole world. Jesus had read Isaiah, and now the full weight of what was going to happen to him became real to him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And Jesus, who had never experienced relational distance from his Abba Father, realized he was about to experience being completely abandoned by God. It got real. He was going to be completely abandoned by God and his closest friends. Jesus would die in torment, God-forsaken, friendless, and alone. In order to save us, he had to be fully one of us. Jesus' passion, his agony, folks, did not begin at the scourging. Or on the cross. It actually began right here in the Garden of Gethsemane. In fact, in Luke's gospel, Luke specifically said, talks about and Jesus being in agony. It talks about how Jesus sweat great drops of blood. Sweat, blood. Blood came out of his pores. His passion begins in the garden. And in fact, his weakness and fear in the face of death, looked so human that the early pagan critics of Christianity, to them it seemed to disqualify Jesus from being any kind of savior, least of all a God worthy of worship. And so Patrick Henry Reardon writes this. He said, from very early times, pagans themselves were quick to notice in, to notice in the agony in Gethsemane what they took to be an inconsistency with the Christian belief in the divinity of Christ. Late in the second century, when the critic Celsus wrote the first formal treatise against the Christian faith, he cited Jesus' fear and discomposure in the garden as evidence against the doctrine of his divinity. Celsus inquired, why does Jesus shriek and lament and pray to escape the fear of destruction, speaking thus, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Celsus neglects to quote the second half of that. But Reardon goes on to say, In truth, reason Celsus, if Jesus so lamented his coming death, he does not appear to have been especially brave, much less divine. But that is the point, brothers and sisters, in order to save us, listen, in order to save us from, are you listening? The fear of death. In order to save us from the fear of death, Jesus had to fully enter into the fear of death. What has not been assumed 
has not been redeemed. Jesus takes on our fear of death. Again, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and listen, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Lifelong bondage. What are you talking about? Do you know how you are bound and enslaved and chained by that nagging little thought that is in the back of your mind, which is why we keep the noise turned up, which is why we have, that, we have to have an MP3 or a podcast or, or a TV or a radio playing at all times because we're afraid that in the silence that nagging little thought, that, wait a second, all this is going to end for me is going to go from the background to the foreground of my experience. We are bound by the fear of death. But Jesus, Jesus delivers us from the fear of death and from the bondage it creates. Now, all of this is wonderful. All of this is a deep and glorious mystery. But there is something even greater here happening in the garden, something even I, equally, if not more wonderful than all that has gone before. Here's what's really cool about Jesus fully expressing our humanity in the garden. Jesus, listen, as a human being, reverses the fall of humanity. Jesus, as a human, reverses the fall of humanity in the garden. Listen, in the Garden of Eden, Adam, the first man, chose to what? To disobey God when the certain outcome of that disobedience was death. On the day you eat of it, you will surely die. So disobedience in the first garden brought death. Look at how Christ undoes this. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, the human, the last Adam, chooses to obey God when the certain outcome of that obedience is death. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not... Listen, listen to the reversal. Adam said, my way be done. My will be done. Jesus said, yet not what I will but what you will. Not what I want, Abba, but what you want. Again, in the Garden of Eden, what did obedience lead to? Obedience to God would lead to bliss and communion and fellowship with God for Adam and Eve. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, what does Christ's obedience lead to? It would lead to agony for Jesus and separation from God. Do you see the undoing of the fall? Two humans, Adam and Jesus, serve as representatives of all humanity. Two humans in two different gardens hold humanity's future in their hands based on their choice of obedience or disobedience. Because of Adam's disobedience, our first parents, oh, this is critical. Because of Adam's disobedience, our first parents and all their children were barred from the tree of life which was in the midst of the garden. The tree of life, eternal life, and union with God. We were barred from that. 
but because of Christ's obedience in the garden, Jesus himself is nailed to another tree, a tree of execution, a cross. Jesus is fixed by nails to the tree of death. But by his obedience, he transforms it into a new tree of life. And from that tree, he calls out to humanity, come and eat of the fruit of this tree and have eternal life. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Hebrews 5, 7 through 9. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he, he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, being made complete, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Listen, Jesus was crying out to God, Abba, Father, save me from death. But God did not save Jesus from death by, him, by allowing him to avoid it. He saved him from death by him conquering it. Death swallowed up Jesus to end him, but it was as if death swallowed a nuclear bomb and Jesus blew it up and came bursting back to life on the third day. Brothers and sisters, how deep the Father's love for us. That he would let his son, who only knew eternal glory and the worship of angels, be made a human being so that he might be smitten in the face by his own creature, so that the one who made the human hand might be struck in the face with human hands. And the one who had breathed the breath of life into the nostrils of the first man would be spat upon by his own creature in order that he might become the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Oh, the deep, deep love of God. This week, Let's walk with him. Don't, don't, don't be like those where it says, and they all forsook him and fled. But let us walk with him all the way to Caiaphas's courtyard, to Pilate's praetorium, to Golgotha outside the city, and finally to the tomb on Easter morning so that we might share in his great victory. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.